the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Grantville Gazetteers go off the map where there be dragons. We meet Star Trek A New Hope number one fan and the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have a roundtable discussion this time with several of the authors who have stories in the new Ring of Fire short story collection, Set in the world Eric Flint created, beginning with 1632, the first novel in the Ring of Fire series. The book we're talking about today is the Grantville Gazette 7. We have a rollicking discussion of the stories that are in the collection, and the writers talk about working together on the 1632 Ring of Fire message board, where many a Ring of Fire author and new author has gotten his or her start. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. Spring has sprung, at least in these parts, so be thankful you can't catch an allergy through the headphones or speakers you're listening to, because I sure have got one. Well, you can't catch an allergy at all. Or can you? We have a pretty cool contest going on at the website this month. We've already gotten a bunch of entries, and we'd love to get yours. The idea is that in Travis S. Taylor's new novel, Trail of Evil, a malevolent AI teams up with an alien species to perhaps threaten Earth. But how might things play out if the computer program the aliens came into contact with wasn't so intelligent? Tell us what is the worst piece of Earth software an intelligent extraterrestrial species could come into contact with and why. For your chance to win a signed copy of Trail of Evil. By the way, Clippy, the Microsoft paperclip, is already taken. And I really want to mention the 2015 Hugo nominations, the awards that will be given at this year's World Science Fiction Convention in Spokane, Washington. Bain writers Tom Crapman, Gray Reinhardt, Dave Freer, Ted Roberts, who writes science articles for the website, and Michael Z. Williamson are on the list, as well as editors of Bain Short Story Anthologies, Jennifer Brozek, Brian Thomas Schmidt, and the legendary Mike Resnick. Bain editor Jim Menz is up for best editor, as well as Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf, my boss. So congratulations to all of these, and best of luck. Onward and upward with the arts. want to welcome a whole bevy of authors from the new 1632 Ring of Fire Universe Anthology, Grantville Gazette 7. Hi, folks. Hello. Hey. Hello. Eric Flint is the creator of the alternate history Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, and continuing through many best-selling book stories and collaborations. He's also the Amanos Grease, uh, I guess, I don't know how to say that, of the 1632.org website, where an amazing community of writers, thinkers, artists, and more has developed, all centered on the world Eric envisioned in 1632. The basic premise is simple. A small West Virginia town is yanked from modern times and thrown back into the 17th century, somewhere in the middle of what will become Germany during the Thirty Years' War. 
The citizens of Grantville must adapt to their new world, and the new old world must come to terms with its own future three centuries early. From that idea, there sprung this trove of stories written within the communal setting that Eric created and fostered. It's, it's really an amazing community that I don't think I've ever seen the like of. And now out at Booksellers is Grantville Gazette 7, the seventh anthology of stories, print anthology of stories in the 1632 Ring of Fire universe. This is, like I said, the seventh print book. There are many more Grantville Gazettes available online at BainEbooks.com as well and elsewhere. Uh, here with us today are several of the writers with stories in the anthology. We have Paula Goodlett. Paula Goodlett is the editor of the Grantville Gazette. She is also the co-author with Gorg Huff and Eric Flint of 1636 The Kremlin Games, 1636 The Viennese Waltz, the forthcoming 1637 The Volga Rules, and The Alexander Inheritance. Gorge is here. He says he likes writing because he is one of those people who thinks of the right thing to say three days to three years after it's too late. I know what you mean. Writing at least offers the possibility of a rewrite. Gorge served in the 82nd Airborne between wars, and he claims has been a pretty useless person since, except he's been pretty useful to Bane because... Yeah, but before, too. <laughs> well, you have written a, a couple of bestsellers, at least one, for us, so I find that useful. We have uh, the author of another Ring of Fire print book as well, Ivor Cooper, Ivor P. Cooper with us. Ivor Cooper is the author of the Braided Anthology, uh, 1636 Seas of Fortune, and a large number of short stories and articles published in the Grantville Gazette. He's an intellectual property law attorney with Browdian Nymark. He's a former patent counsel of the Association of Biotechnology Companies and the author of a patent law treatise, Biotechnology and the Law. He's also an avid photographer and a teacher of swing and folk dancing. David Carrico, author with Eric Flint of 1636 The Devil's Opera, which is one of my favorite in the series. It's a mystery, uh, kind of a police procedural novel to boot. We have Terry Howard. This is Terry's third appearance in a Grantville Gazette hardback anthology, and Terry will freely admit to being a storyteller. Being a writer, he says it's more of a struggle. Mark, I didn't get a bio from you. Mark Huston, can you tell us? Houston, Houston. Mark Houston. Yes, let's get it right. It's radio. What kind of amazing resume do you have? Everybody else seems to have one is involved with this. Oh, this. well, my, my email has it right here. It says Mark Houston is a Chicago-based writer who has produced multiple stories for the 1632 universe. He also writes technical articles and is a columnist for a real estate magazine. Uh, he is a former, and instead of listing everything, I've just inserted, quote, long list of things, unquote, and makes his real money as a mechanical contractor. Well, let's talk about the site first. Um, Paula, can you give us an idea of what goes on at 1632.org? What keeps it so vibrant? I mean, it's been around for years now. Yeah, but 1632.org is, is like a storage system for all the stuff that actually goes on on Bain's Bar in the 1632 conferences. Aha, uh -huh, that's where the action is? That's where the action is. Bain's Bar, 1632 slush, slush comments, and tech, and things can get really interesting there but 1632.org is where we i we do stuff there you know but it's not like bain's bar it's really bain's bar is what we do for the most part and this is a democratic community i mean people can go there and, and get involved right we're happy to have anybody come along you know, unless they, you know, come in and say, you're all stupid, and then we're likely to tell them to go away. But uh, 
for the most part, you know, anybody who has any remote interest in any kind of history can come to the 1632 conference and somebody can answer their question. Doesn't doesn't have to be the 17th century. We've got people who do everything. Why do you think, I mean, Eric has talked about this before. He's amazed at the community that's developed. Not every series gets this kind of intense interest. What do you think it is that um, that, that causes so many people to, you know, to, to keep talking about it this way? There's plenty of series that just do not have anything like this. There's a lot to Well, I it. think in large it's measure, not. it's because of Eric, you know, because Eric welcomed us all in. And there aren't that. that many authors that say, hey, come on, write fanfic. Go ahead. I love it. That's right. I mean, that's the key, right? I mean, one of the keys is that you can write in Eric's universe and he welcomes it. Yes, they pay for it. <laughs> There's that. Eric also keeps a relatively light hand on the steering wheel, so to speak. That is, while there's certainly there are things that he will tell people not to do, he is quite flexible compared to what other shared universe communities have been. Yeah. He's also a very good teacher of writing. Oh, amen. Yeah. So if, if you show that you're involved and, and care about this, um, Eric might very well look at your stuff and give you some pointers. Yeah. Uh, I saw him do more yeah. than that for John Harvell. And that's if uh, he doesn't tell you to write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's happened to some of y'all. So uh, some of you have not only written stories set in the universe, as we're talking about that, but um, there's a couple of New York Times bestsellers out of and in this group. Um, so what, like Paul Ingorg uh, and David Carrico, uh, what's it like working with Eric that, that intensely? Like I said, he's a really good teacher of writing, and he tells you uh, what's missing and what needs to be changed and added. Paul and I both still tend to suffer a bit from white room syndrome, and he keeps pointing that out to the point <laughs> and yeah. there's the, the there's the whole thing about we tend to gorg and i speak in idiom because we think in idiom the idiom of the 21st century america and germans of the 17th century would not think that way so we have yeah, to kind of fight ourselves yeah. to become more formal and yeah. eric points that out rather frequently my experience with eric uh first of all he's wonderful to work with because he comes up with these wonderful ideas and he's very clear usually about what he wants his concepts are clear his outlines are usually clear his expectations are clear but probably the greatest thing about working with eric is he's not a micromanager manager. He writes, his he writes his outlines at the 50,000 foot level, which leaves plenty of room for me as the writer doing the, the first draft to exercise my own creativity. He doesn't give me an outline that is so rigidly formatted and so rigidly detailed that I might as well just, you know, add punctuation and it's, a, and it's his book. From that standpoint, he's great to work with. He's, uh, and he's pretty understanding about real life has happened. I'm not going to have it ready quite when I thought it would, uh, but he's also pretty understanding about, uh, okay, I've run into this problem. How do we, how do I resolve it? So, you know, from, from just about every standpoint as a relatively young in terms of author years writer, although not in calendar years, he's great to work with. Well, you and uh, David came up with some of the creepiest aliens I've ever read about in the book that he and Eric have done. I'm sorry, David, I've forgotten the title, but those yeah. are some seriously creepy aliens. Uh, are you continuing the, the series that he was writing with Katie Wentworth? Yeah. 
Yeah. I got to write. I got to to do the first draft for the third uh, Jalo novel, Span of Empire. And let's just say that the the Ekot, the really bad guy aliens. Let's just say they're not pleasant individuals, and I really did not enjoy having them living in my head for several months. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that. I knew that you were doing that, but it, I kind of forgot. <laughs> That's got to be cool. I really liked that series, and I really liked her. So do I. Yeah, it, it's been turned into uh, today and tentatively scheduled for late 2016, maybe early 2017. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I don't know if it's on the spring schedule or not. I have to look. We're constructing that even as we speak. Um, well, let's talk about some of the stories in the in Grantville Gazette 7. Uh, we lead off with a story by Eric, which is a great story. And then Paul and Gorg have contributed High Road to Venice is the name of the story. It's a great adventure story about flying the monster over the Alps. Now, how has air flight developed in the 1632 universe, and what is the monster, Paula Gorge? Monster is based. Oh, okay. Well, the monster is basically uh, I Sikorsky's bomber from that he developed in 1914, or very similar to it. That it's based on it, and uh, with a couple of additions, modern streamlining and the use of air cushion landing gear. Also something that's actually been done. What year are we in at, at this point? In High Road to Venice, yeah. I think it happens in 1634. However, Eric has stalled aircraft development. He felt we were progressing too quickly, so he's kind of called a halt to aircraft. Well, tell us about the monster, since it does exist in the universe. Yeah. Actually, that does sort of include the monster. Yeah. Now, a big part of the the gimmick of the story um, is this bag that's that's on the bottom of the... Th what is that? Air cushion landing gear. Basically, it was actually developed in our history in 1967. The problem was it was developed really after the need for it had mostly gone away. Air cushion landing gear is amazingly flexible, but it also wears out fast. It's an expensive kind of landing gear. It does work. It's been shown to work, but it wears out fast. And in our modern world, there's really not enough of uh, a financial upside to make it a viable proposition. But in the 1632 universe, there simply were not airports in anything like the number of places that you'd need them. And with a kind of airplane that isn't as dependable as modern aircraft are, that have a tendency as the early te aircraft in our century had to crash every 50 miles or so, air cushion landing gear <laughs> allowed you to make survivable landings. Yeah, Basically a hovercraft. Yeah, it's a hovercraft. Well, um, tell us a little bit about the characters in the story. I, uh, the passengers on the plane are, are kind of a cross-section of people you might find in uh, in, uh, in Grantville, I guess, in 1634, on their way out. They're the elite. They're the uh, very wealthy of Europe of that period, including a few experts from Grantville, but also including... Um, a sultan from Egypt, I believe, if I recall correctly, or from North Africa anyway. One of the uh, sultanates in the Turkish and the pre-Turkish Empire. A boy who was coming back from uh, surgery to correct a septum. Deviated septum. Plus his basically nanny, David Bartley, who's a very wealthy industrialist from, uh, from Grantville and who eventually... Ha has roles <laughs> in 
uh, in other books in the 1632 series. Lord, I can't remember. We wrote that ages. <laughs> well, you've got your pilots, and one of them has prosthetics uh, legs as well. Have, is that part of another story that we've uh, seen in the in the Gazette? Um, yes, one by Virginia DeMars. That is, I mean, that's what's so cool about this—the way you guys play off of each other's fiction. So the the attitudes of the people we meet are. are Really, as much part of the story as the as the technology of the airplane. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but the the attitudes they they wind up on an alpine lake, and the people there at the village are very suspicious, but with good reason. I mean, this is still the 17th century, right? Right. Yeah. And they've heard of uptimers, but they've never met an uptimer. It's a great story. The thing about Paula and Gorg's stories, also, there's always a humorous element to them. I don't know if you guys plan it that way, but um, I just love the Kremlin game for that. Uh, that Bernie character will always stay with me. Oh, wait till you read the Volga rules. You're going to love it. <laughs> Poor Bernie. Yeah. Gave him a hard time. Well, let's move, let's move on to another story. Mark Houston is the author of The Royal and Ancient Game, two stories in the uh, anthology, and The Pessimist's Daughter. Royal and Ancient Game. Did you do a lot of research on golf in the 1600s, Mark? I didn't even realize it existed then before I read your story. Uh, that's actually that's a that is a common theme. You you would think that a story a silly story about golf would be pretty easy to write in the in the 1632 universe, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like every story that all of us write, when we start out it's like, "Oh, I'll just write a story about X." Well, then you start to get into it and you find you have to research, "Oh, what kind of clubs did they use back then? What kind of balls?" What did the golf course look How many holes were there? It turns out that there were 22 holes on that course originally, not 18. And there's the, the amount of research that went into a silly little golf story will boggle your mind. Uh, and, and the thing that, that's really cool about Bayon's Bar and the 1632 forums is when you, when you go there and you put your story out, there's a lot of people who will be able to correct any mistakes that you may have made in your, in your research, and, 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 and it encourages you to get good, accurate stories out. Is that, is that a fair statement, Paul? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to actually say they'd nitpick them to death, but... But you would be amazed at the amount of research that goes uh, into a, uh, a silly little story about golf. Because we want to... There's, there's a reference in there, and, and, and you know, modern uh, old golf clubs, in, in my his, uh, in my uh, experience, have always been made out of, of hickory. And while well, hickory didn't exist in 17th century Scotland... Uh, so, you know, somebody picked up on that in the bar said, no, no, it, it, it's got to be an ash club. It won't be a hickory shaft. Oh, oh, okay, got to change that. So that's the kind of detail sometimes that goes into these stories. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was cool that the uh, golf balls have feathers at their center. Or, were they compressed feathers? or? Yes, they were compressed feathers. Uh, believe it or not, I actually went to a, a golf museum and took pictures and did research uh, on on old golf clubs and old golf balls. Well, a different uh, a different type story entirely is your uh, story, the pessimist's daughter. Um, this is a really nice character story and adventure tale sort of combination. Tell us a, li- a lot of uh, talking about this too much is is spoiling things, but uh, tell us about poor Ursula when we first meet her. She's got a rather complex relationship with her dad, right? He's He's quite a character himself. Yeah, that uh, the, the the father character had been bouncing around in my head for a long time, and I needed a, a story for him. And and one day Ursula appeared uh, in my head along with him, 
and, and the story sort of fell out from there. Ursula is a very, very obedient daughter, and her father is a very, very intelligent, very strong, very, very perceptive, but very rigid individual uh, who's been right time after time after time. So it, it sets up an interesting dynamic when, when this family themselves in a uh, an environment like Grantville, which is safe uh, compared to any place else they've been, and it's also encouraging. It's, it's encouraging uh, the daughter to expand her horizons, to look beyond her family for experiences. Yeah, she's running into 20th century attitudes, or or 21st. I guess it's 20th century. Her dad. I I just love the, the thinking, picturing him as this. He's a he's an undertaker, and he just uh, everybody calls him Eeyore. He's uh, a grim-faced fellow, right? That's correct, yeah. He's actually uh, based on a gentleman who was uh, my step-grandfather-in-law, I guess I would call him. I'm sure Virginia would correct me on that. that he, he was based on a, on, a, on a real person who genuinely liked that and, and made a quite an impression on me when I was 12 years old. Well, Jack, Jack Carroll, is the author of An Electrifying Experience in the anthology, and this one's kind of cool because it has as its hero a mine safety inspector um, or actually a safety inspector of electrical equipment or just a uh, Jan Basboom is pretty heroic um, in defense of common sense reality in the story isn't he? Well I'd say it has two heroes. The other one is the is the Miller. Uh, <coughs> no def- the Miller's daughter. Well yes but uh, I, I think the Miller himself has a more central role in the story. And anyway uh, what what would you like to well, just the fact that um, they, how you created drama out of a guy basically coming in and doing an OSHA inspection or something, you know, like the, 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 or more like a guy that's come in to fix your, your, your IT problems because it's life and death in this situation, right? Yeah. Well, he's a, a composite of several engineers I've known and maybe a little bit of myself. I'm a, an almost retired electronics engineer. What, my first job after the Air Force was at the Cambridge Electron Accelerator, which was a particle physics lab at Harvard University. And that lab dealt with a, a lot of dangerous things, liquid hydrogen, very high-powered electrical equipment, uh, intense radiation, and there was a safety department there. And the, uh, they, they had to research and write and enforce rules and teach people how to do things safely. Now, the foil forum is the mine owner, and I can't say I've met anybody quite like him, but I've, I've, I've read about people like him, and in the early stages of a technology, you tend to get certain number of bullheaded know-it-alls who think they know a lot more than they do. And of course, that combines with the 17th century culture, which was nowhere near as safety-oriented as today's industry. So we got a fellow who was ready to, to go ahead and rush an installation of, of an electrical mine pump when uh, he'd been handed a set of instruction sheets that weren't in a, you know, the language he could read. And that created a very dangerous situation. And then we had this this field engineer from American Electric Works who built the generator and the, and the motors and a lot of the electrical equipment, trying to explain to him what you had to do to not only make this thing work, but make it work without killing anybody. So it made a good uh, a good people story. And as any of our authors, uh, let alone Paula, will tell you, Granville Gazette stories are people stories first, and the technology is there in the in the background for them to work with. Well, he's um, I mean, the, it, it's interesting because the the protocol. I guess the the moral of the story is read the dang directions when you're setting up. Yeah, Yeah. In fact, my, my first working title for the story was RTFM, which you may know 
stands for read the fucking manual. The the interesting thing about the story to me also was was the clash between you know this is a the twentieth century twenty first century we have had that history of the mines and and accidents and and all of these safety precautions. You know, and and it's in it's it's almost like they're naive. Um, although you know they've they've been mining for years, but they're mining on an industrial scale for the first time, and um, they don't have the you know that know it in your bones that mines can really kill you, right? Uh, although, oh, I think they you think they did. No, I think they they did know that, but the seventeenth century just attitude, give a shit. Yeah, the seventeenth century. Well, basically, it was a much different. more adventurous age. You know, we're forever having people say on the bar say, oh, no, you can't do that. It's unsafe. But people did. People ignore the fact that hundreds of pilots got killed before they came up with a really good working airplane. They ignore the fact that many people got, you know, crushed in mines before they figured out other things. But it was a more adventurous age, and safety was not the consideration then that it is now. Yeah, I think mean, we put it a more cynical way. Life was pretty darn cheap in the 17th century. It yeah. basically, a human wasn't worth that much more than a horse. I think a, another aspect is is that no matter what, you weren't going to live that long in the conditions of the 17th century. There were just too many things that could kill you at an early age. And bear in mind that when you went to sea, every fifth ship didn't come back, right? Yeah, one in 20 shot. Yeah, be, being a sailor in that time was the only occupation that was even more dangerous than being a farmer. Sounds like you wouldn't want to be an insurance agent either, though. Yes, there was a marine insurance industry. Well, let me ask Terry about, so you have uh, stories in Irish Sitter and the I Irish Sitter Sings, um, both in the volume by Terry Howard. And in, in the Irish Sitter Sings, we meet uh, a nursemaid. Tell us, tell us about being a nursemaid in the 17th. You know, you, you, you run into this term in literature, and, and it's, just, it's just not something that exists in, in modern Western society anymore. Well, you're dealing with a wet nurse, somebody who is in milk and makes her living feeding children breast milk. And if you have somebody who is in, in milk, she probably just lost her child. And if she has to support herself in that fashion, she probably doesn't have a husband. So you've got a uh, potentially forlorn young lass who uh, is up against it. And in the Irish Center Sings, somebody finds one and cleans her up in a Pygmalion fashion, like my fair lady, and passes her off to an uptimer as a presentable nanny. Yeah, I mean, she's she's really from the dregs of society, but she's also pretty clever and is able to adapt. Yes. Because she's she needs to to survive, I guess. But I, it was an interesting point that the best circumstances is is that they lost their child and they're sad. I mean, the the more likely circumstances that they've they've lost a husband, lost a child. Um, I mean, they're just uh, a nursemaid is not a happy thing usually to be, I guess. Well, no, if you're actually in milk, you're in milk for a reason, and the reason for that is. You know, essentially, you lost the kid you were going to feed. There is huge 
amounts of tragedy in the 17th century. And we gloss over it a lot, but the underlying truth remains that there is a lot of tragedy in the 17th century. The tragedy doesn't necessarily avoid the uptimers. There are right. you know, a number of stories, including my own story, Elegy, and the, the safety nets that we you have in the 20th and 21st century aren't there anymore. That's part of the, I mean, the, that that's often the drama in, in a great, in a good 1632 universe story you know grant bill gazette's story um it's just that realization that that frisson if you will so but tell us about horatio Al alger burston um terry while there's some some uh tragedy in the irish setter sitter sings um he's not the the cause of that um he's a man with a nice sense of the absurd right who is he great character um he he appears in other uh in other stories he's somebody we know not really no well A couple. write some more <laughs> i want to read about him get busy terry excellent yes i assume you have been um so, well this time uh we have a mystery from ivor cooper called arsenic and old italians arsenic seems like it was everywhere and uh, it, it takes place in Florence, uh, in the in the Medici's around. And we, you know, we we think about their poisoning and poison rings with, and and such. But it seems like arsenic is just like everywhere in society at this time. Well, arsenic had been around for quite a long time. Nero used it, poisoned someone that was politically inconvenient. So uh, it's shall we say an old Italian tradition. Bear in mind that. It wasn't that arsenic was just there as a poison. Uh, there, there's an arsenic compound called orpiment. It's a yellow pigment that was used in painting. There was use of arsenic compounds in cosmetic. There were cases of food adulteration that were wasn't that was only inadvertently a poisoning through someone trying to get the right color in the food. The thing about this story, obviously we have other detective stories. David has, uh, of course, some that have been collected in Murder and Magic, and I think Karen has a couple. This is the second story featuring Louis Bartoli, and he's essentially CSI. He's uh, a chemist by training, and um, the prior story that involved him in the Gazette was called Under the Tuscan Sun, S-O-N, and had to do with, uh, uh, shall we say, butterflying a, a real-life archaeological forgery that had occurred back then. But this one, uh, as you, as the name intimates, has to do with poison. Your detective is uh, is an uptimer who is um, showing people the elements, right? He's right, and that happens to be an allusion to the first story that involved him 
where he had an assignment um, essentially to find boric acid, uh, which is found in the Marema, Marima, I don't know how to pronounce it, region of Tuscany, the marsh country. And uh, so, yes, it starts off there. And you'll notice that we have Galileo, who we last saw in the Galileo affair, and appear uh, in that lecture, he makes a cameo appearance. Yeah, there's all kind of uh, nice threads in the story. Who was, uh, I'm sorry, I, I suddenly blanked on your main character's name. Um, who who was he bef in Grantville before the, uh, the Ring of Fire? He was actually a high school student before the Ring of Fire that got put into the this accelerated program in chemistry. And uh, the it turns out that the high school that the one in Granville is based on, North Marion, North Marion, excuse me, high school in Mannington, West Virginia, actually does have a forensics course in its program available. It has several chemistry courses and the like. So he was assigned shortly after the Ring of Fire to the what was called the Military Research Group and eventually was sent on assignment to Italy. And that's one of the rules of 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 the of Grantville Gazette stories and it is that what was in Grantville, what was in Eric's uh you know, it, it is Mary in West Virginia. That's what you got to work with. You don't have to work with, you, can, you can't have everything, right? There's there's limitations, and, and that's part of the fun of the stories, right? Yeah, no SEAL ninjas, nuclear engineers. No. Only in a science fiction story. But you don't have like, oh, the, the world expert on this or that happened to be in town at the time. They have they have to they're regular people. I mean that's part of uh, you know Eric's philosophy. He's a yeah. now, we, now that's something that flight. actually is on 1632.org is Eric's essay on the many halves of Grantville, uh, which we recommend everybody read before they try to write a story for us because it's really important to understand that. You cannot have half the people in Grantville be 18-year-old males with no family and black belts in martial arts. And then you have another half who are nuclear physicists who can build the atom bomb in a year. And the other half are something else. And there's another half that is something else. We just don't do that. You have to work with real people, with real families. And cousins and aunts and uncles and moms and dads and you have to well you just have to because we're not going to take it if you don't and the books that were in the Grantville library yes yeah well and there are some we discovered quite a few years after um, we started this whole series that there are more books in Grantville than we had been told there were so and more computers in Grantville. Yeah, more computers in Grantville, more guns. And we had a pretty more fair guns. number of guns <laughs> to begin with. And and more vehicles. Like, you know, nobody ever really mentions the all-terrain vehicles, and they're just all over the place. So uh, we've loosened up some of the restrictions on on the books in Grantville, kind of, sort of, but anything that's, you know, just hugely specialized that nobody there is possibly going to have, we don't allow. You have to yeah, figure it out way, another way. In, yeah, in a way, the Alexander You did have the one improbable thing. You had a Baptist with a doctoral degree pastoring a little <laughs> city town. He should not have been there. 
Uh-huh. Hey, somebody I him. Well, he might have, you know, he still didn't know how to read. That's what Methodists are for. <laughs> well, yeah, but this guy no. has an actual library with him when he moved to Granville. Yeah, he was on the grid when I joined the group, so I can't, I will not take responsibility. I, I, think you know, Andrew, I think Andrew Dennis invented him, and I don't think he realized what he was doing, because he not only gave him a doctorate, he gave him a very specialized, very theological doctorate. And th this is a guy, that kind of degree is what you take, what you have when they ask you to teach at seminary. That's not what the typical pastor has. So we've all, some of us have had a chuckle about it, and there's been arguments about, well, what's going to be in his library and what's not there for years. Well, that's part of the fun of the, uh, of, of the, of the community. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you guys argue about, or not argue, but but discuss on the on the board. Well, David Carrico, you have uh, kind of a metaphorical shaggy dog story called The Hair of the Dog, or The Continuing Adventure of Harry Lefferts. Um, tell us about the Wrecking Crew um, who come into this. They're, they have a history in the, in the series, right? Well, early, relatively early on in the series, Eric developed Harry Lefferts as... Kind James of a prototypical James Bond kind of character. And he allowed Harry to gather a few specialists to put together a crew that was really good with, with making things that go boom and really good in situations where people who are really good at putting a hurt on other people. And they, I think their first real appearance as a crew, if I remember rightly, is in Paula has said things to me before about the fact that I don't 
right short. My comfortable writing length appears to be, uh, you know, 10,000 words or higher. And uh, I've really only done two And that's if I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah, if you're lucky. And I, I don't have too very many. I don't have very many of the 10 to 15,000 word ones. They're usually over 20. But I, I only have two successful short stories in, uh, under 3,000 words, and this is one of them. Well, it's pretty amusing. Um, and it's in the uh, it, it's in the hardcover. Um, the creativity of you guys, the the whole community, is mind-boggling to me a lot of times. Um, and it, you, you just keep at it. Um, we've touched on just the surface here, and you know, just hearing you guys discuss uh, lefferts and and or whatever technology, this or that. Uh, it it just um, it, it seems like a microcosm of the whole uh, experience. If you go and experience, uh, if you if you go and check out the boards that you guys maintain. Can I stick in a plug for Alexandrian Inheritance? Sure. Okay, well, the Alexandrian Inheritance inheritance is another short. It's been turned into Eric. And it takes a cruise ship back to the just after Alexander the Great died. In a way, it's a lot like Grantville. There are actually more people and probably a more diverse group of people, but they've got a lot more limited, they're a lot more limited in the amount of technology because it's just the one cruise ship. Uh, well, a couple of ships, but, but it's a very, it's much more limited in terms of what they've actually got. They've got a very limited number of engines and motors and stuff number of younger people because cruise ships tend to be inhabited by the more aged part of the population that's uh that's pretty cool um yeah i've heard eric talk about that he's as a secret project no i think he's he's announced it right yeah yeah it's come up yeah it's 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 on the list and we should have said that we love new writers do you have any aspiration to write and you're familiar with this series, this is the perfect place to begin because we will nurture new writers. They did it for me. They can do it for anyone. I do have to specify that truly you have to be familiar with the series, and that's getting more and more difficult as time goes on because, well, I think we're working on 8 million words now. So, but you have to be at least familiar with the main books of the series and willing to put up with constructive criticism because there is that. On the upside, it's 8 million words of really good stuff. <laughs> and we will be happy to sell it to you here at Bain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In any dollop that you want. Yes. No, I, I want to second that because I, you know, I've, writing has been... Uh, always on my list of things that I wanted to accomplish and and you know I, I showed up at uh, at the bar and wrote a, a a rather okay story that had all kinds of structural issues that a new writer didn't know about and and Paula and the crew were you know kind enough to look at it and say hmm this has got some potential fix this fix this fix this and by golly, they bought it, and I was on my way. It was, uh, it was, it was. I was, I was. I'm still thrilled about that that sale, and and uh, and I'm sure others could be just as thrilled by going through that same process. It's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a great ride for me, and I really want to, you know, thank all you guys for uh, for all that. I mean, it's it's been great for me. 
Paula, what's the statistics? Over 100 and some odd people made their first professional sales to the Gazette. And how many oh, yeah, I don't actually have the absolute statistics, but uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and uh, we do we do pay professional rates since six cents a word. Um, crazy money. Yeah. You know, it takes some time. We have had some, you know, there have been situations where people rewrote a lot. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do. And if you want to sell, at least we'll help you rewrite. I think the rec- record is Rick Boatwright. He rewrote his first story 15 times before he finally got to where, where Paula bought it. Well, if you're rewriting to editorial direction, then you're you're way ahead of 99% of all the other writers out there. That's true. One thing you can say about this whole universe is that it's the ultimate hard science fiction. Uh, Earth imposed a rule right at the beginning that all science had to be absolutely real and all technology had to be at least possible within real science and the history had to be real on both tracks up to the time time transfer event. So when you write under those rules... It it really really feels like you're like you're there and you can understand what's happening. That that it might not appeal to every audience, but there's a big audience that it does appeal to. Yeah, it really is science fiction um, because I mean it's not alternate history in the strict sense, and and it has the feel of good science fiction. Um, I want to know that we are going to be at Liberty Con uh, the last week in June 2015. And we will be doing our Weird Tech panel, which uh, truly describes the odd things that have happened with technology in the 1632 universe, as well as David Carrico's music panel, which describes a really different music. Well, that's, that sounds cool. Uh, Liberty Con is, um, is this summer, so we've got plenty of time to, to, to set to go to that. Is, um, so you guys get together... Not uh, not every weekend, right? But you you do see each other physically because of the fact of science fiction conventions. And um, do you make a point of uh, meeting up when you're when you know enough of you are going to be in a place? Well, yes. I mean, mostly it's the once a year sixteen thirty two convention that we have at various places around the United States. But, you know, if I know somebody's going to be down in Tampa, for instance, I try to make it down to Tampa. I don't always manage, but I try. Yeah, for for example, Eric was guest of honor at FinCon last year in Dallas. And Rick Boatwright and I drove down to uh, to meet up with him. And several other 1632 fans uh, showed up. So it, it wasn't a scheduled 1632 Minicon. But there was still a 1632 presence there at FinCon. We had five um, 1632 authors at Balticon last year. We're going to have more this year. And there are going to be three 1632-related panels this time around. Well, you're on your way to taking over the world. And we would be very happy if you do. (laughs) So... The book is Grantville Gazette 7, a collection of the stories set in the Ring of Fire time travel back in history milieu created by Eric Flint. Um, it's now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. Ring of Fire community authors, thank you very much for being with us. Anytime, Tony. Just call us.
And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. The Tempest hit the top of the Imperium flagship so hard that they broke one of the landing skids. They bounced, the entire dirigible creaking as the skeleton bent and then hit again. The top of the Tokugawa was mostly flat like the deck of a traditional ship with glass and aluminum superstructure rising all along the center. The shattered bubble of the UBF prototype skidded to a halt next to a two-story structure covered in antennas, some sort of rear control area for the back of the flagship. One of their wings crashed into the structure's pylons and snapped. Francis rose from where he'd been flung behind the captain's seat, not twenty feet away through what had once been the control room bubble, there were two Imperium men looking at him from a wide window in the building, apparently shocked by the sudden appearance of an American airship landing right on top of them. Francis waved, and one of them hesitantly waved back. He used his power to slam their glass. It crashed in a sheet, which he then whipped up into a tornado of slicing bits, and blood splattered their walls. Don't mess with a mover. Everyone okay? Francis shouted. There was coughing and some movement as the crew staggered up. Lance got out of the captain's chair, dusting broken glass from his beard. Crew, keep her running. We'll be back as fast as we can, Francis shouted, picking up an Enfield rifle and heading for the ramp. The Tempest's boarding party had already debarked ahead of them. Francis came running down the ramp, but there wasn't much to see. They'd landed on the very tail end of the Tokugawa, and he had to run around his own ship to see where they were going. He slipped and tumbled since everything was slick with pounding rain, but he made it back up and kept running. Heinrich was in the lead. He'd picked up one of those new Solothurn 8mm attack rifles with a big curved magazine sticking out the side. It had a rate of fire so intense that it sounded like ripping cloth Ahead of the fade was the length of the Tokugawa's top deck. It seemed to go on forever. The tempest was absolutely tiny by comparison. The UBF brute had kicked in the door to the structure they'd crashed next to, and Francis followed him in. Except for the lacerated bodies from the men he'd telekinetically killed in the main room, the structure was clear. 
there was a ladder that led downward into the bowels of the ship between the three great hulls. If they need a workshop for that Tesla device, they'll be in engineering. It is in the center of the ship. Francis looked over and was surprised to see that the accountant, Mr. Chandler, had followed him and was holding a Thompson. What? I was in the war, Canadian Army, Gordon Highlanders. UBF built this thing. I know how much every part of it cost, and I took the tour. Heinrich appeared, walking right through the wall as he changed the magazine in his solothurn. The barrel was white-hot. There are more coming. There's little time. They had to find this thing and find it fast. One team up, one team down. Faye was jumping around like a madwoman. She figured the best thing she could do was just keep moving, causing trouble, and besides, the longer she stayed in one place, the more likely she was to get shot. It was harder to aim at something that wasn't there by the time you pulled the trigger. Other actives worried about running out of power, but she didn't. It just seemed to be there, the same as always. She appeared behind a soldier in a brown uniform, stuck her shotgun in his spine, and pulled the trigger. She was traveling so fast now that by the time the action cycled, the spent shell ejected 200 yards away as she landed right in front of another soldier and tripped him so he fell down a ladder and broke his neck. Her head map was filled with information. There were hundreds of people moving, thousands of bullets. She had to stay in motion. One second she was in the flagship inside a room filled with dirt and windows like they were going to try and grow crops and then she was outside in the rain where she hit a man in the head with her shotgun butt and watched him flip over the railing, and then she was in a narrow little room filled with red light and shooting steam, and there was one man in a black uniform using his power to keep the hydrogen from catching on fire, so she just shot him in the neck, and then she was up in a room with a bunch of radios, so she shot all those folks too, and then she shot the radios for good measure until her shotgun was empty. Whew! She paused to catch her breath as she pulled more buckshot off her bandolier. Her power might not run out, but she was getting tired, and this was about the fifth time she'd emptied the stubby shotgun. The browning was smoking hot, and her shoulder was going to have a really nasty bruise. Faye brushed an errant strand of hair away from her eye. She still hadn't seen anything that looked like her grandpa's Tesla device, but as soon as she did, she was going to smash it real good. She couldn't find it on her head map because everything here was so filled with complicated mechanical devices that everything looked kind of the same. Her head map warned her to move, so she did, not even knowing why, and a sword cleaved through the air where she'd been standing. There was a woman in front of her where there hadn't been anybody a second ago. She was dressed all in tight black, had red hair spilling over her shoulders and was way prettier than Faye, and strangest of all, she had gray eyes, too. Hey, you're just like me, she exclaimed. The woman didn't respond. She just whipped the sword around to take Faye's head off, but Faye was too quick for that. The sword snaked chips from the wall, and Faye appeared behind her. Oh, so that's how it is, Faye said as she pulled up the shotgun, but the woman was just as quick as she was, and the buckshot blew twelve holes in the wall instead of meat. Faye instinctively ducked as the sword stabbed over her shoulder. She appeared in an empty access tunnel two stories below, put her back to the wall, and kept loading the shotgun. Could the redhead follow her? Faye had never tried to use her head map to keep track of another traveler before, so she wasn't sure. 
she realized her shirt was torn and blood was welling from her shoulder. The blade had been so sharp she hadn't even felt the cut, but she sure did now. The woman appeared at the other end of the tunnel. You're a slippery one, she said, but no one escapes Toshiko of the Shadow Guard. Well, I'm Fay of the Grim Noir Knights and I wasn't trying to escape, Fay answered bravely. I was just waiting for your slow ass to catch up. The woman screamed, raised her sword, and charged. Faye lifted the shotgun and fired as the woman traveled, appearing just behind the passing buckshot, and swung, but only raised sparks off the grating as Faye disappeared. Faye landed at the opposite end of the tunnel. The woman was too fast, but maybe she was like everybody else and her power had to run out sometime, just like Delilah had taught her. Hey, Toshiko, that ninja suit makes you look like a fat cow. The ninja raised her sword. Red light reflected down the razor steel. It would be just like playing tag. Catch me if you can, fat cow, Faye taunted before traveling as far as her map would take her. Sullivan swung the barrel of the bar around the corner and caught the lead crewman in the face. Cheekbone shattered, he stumbled back into his companions, and Sullivan followed, using his power to tumble them down the hall into the far wall. These were in Navy uniforms, so maybe they knew their way around this giant maze. He dropped the rifle, knowing the sling would catch it and hold it against his chest, as he drew his forty-five and walked forward. He put one bullet into each head, but stopped at the last one. He grabbed the soldier by the throat with his left hand and picked him off the ground and slammed him against the wall. He didn't know if the Jap spoke English, so he kept it simple. Wherever his brother was, that's where the Tesla device would be. Where's Maddie? The sailor started to jabber something. Sullivan lowered the forty-five and shot him in the knee. The sailor screamed. English, do you speak it? Maddie, Maddie, the man pointed down, said a bunch of other words, but Maddie was in there and he kept pointing in a downward direction. That would do. Sullivan slammed the sailor's skull into the metal bulkhead, then dropped him. There was an interior stairwell around the next corner, so he started down. He paused at the next level, but then snapped back as a sub-gun barked, hitting the corner of the wall. Someone bellowed from behind the gun. More ninjas! English? Grimoire? he shouted. Sullivan, that you? Yeah, don't shoot, he answered, coming around the corner. He'd forgotten about the black mask and goggles. He pulled them off and shoved them into his coat. Sure enough, it was the Grimoire. Dan Garrett was in the lead, followed by Heinrich Koenig, a dark-haired stranger, and more people were coming up behind them out of the darkened passageway. One of yours? the man with the Thompson asked. Proud to say yes on that one, Dan answered. Sullivan, have you seen Jane? When Sullivan shook his head, Dan lowered his. Damn it, I've got to find her. Engineering is this way, I think, said the man with the Thompson. Come on. Heinrich grabbed Sullivan by his coat. Listen to me, friend. There is something I must tell you. Something. It can wait, Heinrich, Sullivan answered. No, it can't. The woman's voice came from the darkness of the hallway. She stepped forward into the dim light. Sullivan blinked hard. The... Delilah? It couldn't be, but he recognized her shape in the shadows, but 
Something was different. Something was wrong. How? Had the healing magic worked after all? But why wasn't she coming closer? He started to go to her, but Heinrich held on with all his might. Sullivan, please, I beg you, listen to me. He shoved the fade off and ran for her, his heart leaping. Delilah stepped out of the shadows and... She was dead. It was obvious. He'd seen thousands of zombies during the Great War. The unnatural fire in her eyes, the way her skin hung loose over her face. She was dressed in a formless UBF coverall, but black blood had congealed all around the hole in her abdomen from the wound that had killed her. Delilah stopped right in front of him. I'm sorry, she cried, her voice trembling. Her skin was pale white, but blotted with black and purple bruises. He encircled her in his arms. It's not your fault, he whispered. It's mine, oh, God, forgive me, please forgive me. Now that he was close, he could smell her. Her body was already decaying. I didn't know I never would have left. Jake, I'm gone. Let go of me. Please let go. He did so, uncomfortably stepping away. He wanted to die. What? What? The Lazarus magic got me. I died while it was still in effect. I think it was a fight between your magic and his, but his was stronger. She raised one hand and stroked his cheek, fingers hard and dry. Heinrich was going to mercy kill me, but I told him who better to go on a suicide mission than somebody who was already dead. Shh, he pleaded. I'll find a way. There has to be a way to fix this. The power. No, she answered. You can't understand the pain, Jake. I'm using my power just to keep it in check enough not to go crazy. And when I run out, she sighed, I won't turn into one of those mindless monsters out of their gourd with pain. This is a one-way trip for me, baby. You have to let me do this. I can't. You can, because you're the strongest and best man I've ever met. Do this for me, Jake. Let me go. Be happy. Promise me you'll go on and live a long, happy life, have lots of kids, and die of old age. She leaned in and kissed him gently on the lips, cold as ice. He started to cry. I can't. You can, and you will, because that's my dying wish, you selfish bastard. Her blackened lips cracked into a smile. She took his hand in hers, placed it on the center of her chest, where there was no heartbeat, and he died inside. Now, come on, I deserve to go out with a bang. Heinrich was waiting for them, his hat down low, covering his eyes. This way, he said softly. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. 
Thanks to Bain intern Amanda Holton and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an Ashanti shard bringing time-reversed fireworks and the victory of those saucy Worcesters, Worcestershires, Worcestershires over the Yorks and the Lancasters, whose chief achievement was the carving of Eric Flint's profile into a mountain-sized lump of coal and taking it to Newcastle, and the creation of the Internet 300 years early, were the authors of Grantville Gazette 7. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Mm-hmm.